All right, Forge family, our time around the Word of God is a precious thing. Together we continue to look at uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God with a little bit of our left brains and a whole lot more of our right brains. We want to know the Word, but more than that, we want to experience it, sense it, read it, and listen to it with expectancy. And... And honestly, the the reading of the Word and the application of the Word is so much broader than the evangelical experience. You know, there's a a whole slice of contemplative practice around the Scriptures that that somehow we just, we dabble in, we taste, but it isn't isn't a lifestyle for us yet. So there's there's more Word available. So we turn our hearts today to the Lord as we learn. Where we were last week was we looked at Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding the care of the most vulnerable members of the house churches in Ephesus. The widows, both young and old, were under great pressure. Paul set out to craft a family-centered care response, even if their blood relatives turned them down and and sent the widows away. The church was going to step in and care for them. And, and the church was constrained to help financially support them so that the widows could continue a ministry that they'd had for a long time. On the other side of the ballot, there were widows who set about to express wanton pleasure and indolence against the teaching of Timothy and Paul. The charge to Timothy was to lay out a care system that matched both the expectations of the Jewish community and the Gentile community because both those communities cared for their elderly and the widows. Two centuries later, the teachings of Paul were consolidated into a document called um, the Constitution of the Apostles in the second century, but uh, that document was not included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, It was deemed not uh, inspired by Holy Spirit. They drew from Paul and other sources. And... uh, what has left, it's been left us with the pastoral epistles, if you will, as a source for us for the last 2,000 years. Let's pray. Holy One, Lord, you're the one who lifts our countenance and equips us to walk in your ways. We would be those who care for the most vulnerable around us and, takes, and take back that, that moral high ground that the church lost to big government. Open our eyes and our hearts, Lord. Help us listen to your leading as we press in for your resources. Please lead us by your prompt in the moment and by the word of God as foundations. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and following. Paul is exhorting Timothy to establish more godly infrastructure, if you will. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of groping for another word there, because it was obviously they're building into the life of the churches of Ephesus. And so it, it carries on for the next six verses. <clears throat> 17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially who work hard on, at preaching and teaching. Now the reference here to vetted leaders um, of the house churches. They, they were the leaders of the house churches. They'd, they'd grown up and matured over 10 years. <clears throat> Paul steps in and begins a, con, 
uh, contrast message between those elders who labor to the point of exhaustion, who work diligently with the word. Literally, that's what the text says. You know, it says uh, double honor is there, especially for those who work hard with the word. It's the translation committee that put in the phrase, work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's a much broader spectrum of how the scripture is used in the life, uh, privately and publicly. Now, note the business referred to here as rule. That word in Greek means to be over, to superintend, to preside, to manage. Nowhere is there a harsh note of do it my way or you're gone. This is the same word that leaders were to apply over their families. It's a, it's, it's, it extends it as a family thing. It's a fatherly manner, a firm, gentle, unwavering, and caring uh, attitude. This is leadership by persuasion, not by demand. And then Paul turns to the honor the double honor, if you will, to be accorded to those who lead in that fashion and labor over presentation and practice of the word of God. Paul says those elders who lead well are to be remunerated, compensated financially, paid, along with the honor honor and respect for their ministry. They were to be set aside for the purpose of leading from the word. Now, some elders in the Ephesian church were probably businessmen, and so they had to live a double, you know, the kind of double task. You know, they, they ran double time in their business to try and do an excellent job as a business person in the community. And they were also those who were being financially supported in some manner. Uh, and so they had to get their nose down in the word and get ready for, for that need. Verse 18 continues with the scriptural basis for paid leaders. Quote, For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and, quote, the laborer is worthy of his wage, unquote. Again, Paul comes to Timothy with both the Old Testament scriptures and the words of Jesus as his base. In Israel, in the grain crops, at the time of harvest of those grain crops, uh, which would have been barley first and then wheat, those grain crops were cut, the stalks were cut at ground level. They were bundled up into sheaves, and then transported uh, to a threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor was either a hard clay surface or a stone surface, often on a ridgetop, because what you wanted was the warm, if not hot, wind that was blowing from the coast from west to east to help blow away the chaff when you did your your threshing. The farmers would then uh, break open the sheaves of of the, the grains well, they all had grain heads still attached, and they would spread those out on the threshing floor, and they used something called a sled or a sledge. And that was a, you know, we would recognize it immediately because the shape was like a snow sled. It had an upturned, a toboggan had an upturned front on it, but the bo- the heavy, it was heavy, heavy wood, but the bottom was studded with um, embedded rocks. And, and you dragged that back and forth over the, the grain crop, to separate the heads of grain from the stalks. That was work that was usually done by oxen. The other thing that they would do is they would tether oxen shoulder to shoulder in a yoke and uh, attach that that yoke to a central post. And then they would drive the oxen around in circles. 
to walk over and crush down and remove the, the grain heads from the stems, from the straw. And uh, the word in the Old Testament of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25 flatly ordered the farmers to not muzzle the ox. And the ox was entirely permitted to dip his head, get a mouthful of some straw, some grain, and that sort of was the incentive. You know, that was the treat. That kept him going. You know, that fueled your, your ox team. <clears throat> in Matthew 10, Jesus states the case for the laborer. He who labors in ministry is to be paid, not just listened to and disregarded. He is worthy of support. In Ephesus, those who labored with the word of God in a diligent, authoritative, gracious manner were to be supported by the churches. Now, we know that Paul had, in times past, uh, as he began to plant churches, he would choose to not uh, receive any funds whatsoever from those churches because he could support himself either being a tent maker or a saddle maker. Now, you choose which tradition you want to believe about what Paul did to make his own way. Maybe both, okay? But the other reason that he did not um, receive any income from those churches is that to many of them, particularly Gentile congregations, that teaching was brand new. It was fresh. They, they'd sensed Holy Spirit. They had come to Christ, but they knew nothing. And so he is uh, going about the business of teaching them carefully and wants to make sure that there can be no charge brought against him, that he is ministering the gospel for the money. He had been, ex he'd been supported for his two-year teaching in Ephesus where he was in the school of Tyrannus and he taught every day, every day. Um, and uh, at the end of two years, all of Asia Minor had heard the gospel. Not all of it had responded, but they had all heard who Jesus was and what his claims were. <clears throat> the churches in Ephesus were seasoned and the leaders were mature and worthy of the double honor. The second half of the contrast of leaders is here displayed in verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two to three witnesses. Those that continue in sin, and they're speaking of, of elders, those who just keep, blow, they blow right through the rebuke, they continue in sin. <clears throat> you rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Now, this is a shortened version of the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. And essentially, uh, the essence of what Jesus' words about church discipline were, number one, if your brother sins against you, you go to him privately and you present his, you know, the hurt to you and the sin to the body of Christ. And it says, and if he hears you, you will win your brother back. If he won't hear you, then you're to take two, one or two others so that by multiple witnesses, the facts of a further rebuke may be confirmed. If your brother refuses to listen to two or three of you who come to rescue him, tell the events to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you, let him be to you all, including his mother, okay? <laughs> all as one who is lost and no longer a believer here paul shortens that formula down 
for church discipline of an elder, he's down to one line. He says, no accusations against an elder with fewer than two or three witnesses. Now, the word here for accusation is from the culture, from the Greek-speaking culture, and it speaks of a tribunal. It's a public trial with witnesses that are called to testify, and judgment would be handed down. Now, Paul does not allow gossip, sniping, or snark to be used because an elder held someone else accountable and they felt hurt or embittered. Rather, the accusation of a godly elder was a big deal. And it witnesses, if witnesses came forth showing wrong actions and attitudes, that leader was called to repent. If he would not, then the churches are to be informed that the leader had clung to his sin and had been rebuked publicly and removed from leadership. Now Matthew 18 then said, if he will not listen to the church, let him be to them as an unbeliever. Well, all, all of this discipline is aimed at redemption. For the, the, the opening statement in Matthew 18 about winning your brother back. Yes, others may be caught in fear because they're privately sinning in a similar way. Or they were patterning themselves after the fallen leader. Now, remember, the fear that fell on the church in, churches in Jerusalem at the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 4, those who were dabbling in sin were a target for redemption and restoration as well, and the fear of the Lord brought them back to the feet of Jesus. In ministry, this last 52 years, I've had the chance to see church discipline that uh, had as its, at its goal the repentance of the sinner, the restitution of the sinner for their sin, and the evident redemption and restoration of that sinner. It had, I've seen it work in its joyful entirety. I've also seen it work in the opposite direction. When the accused turned back to their previous and darkened state and remained there for life. Now, the former brings joy and relief as you watch God at work openly. The latter is an unknown to us, but the goal of the Father is still redemption and salvation. Only he, only the Father knows the outcome of any who will walk away from the gospel. Now, Timothy is sharply warned here in verses 21 and 22. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon any too hastily and thus share responsibility for their, the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Paul warns Timothy to hold fast to the formerly stated principles of qualifications for elders and deacons, for his treatment of all in the congregations, for his caregiving leadership over the vulnerable widows, and for his grip of biblical discipline, discipline of leaders who sin. Now Paul warns twice. Timothy, no bias, no party spirit, no spirit of partiality. Some leaders would be easy to lead, easy to befriend, easy to partner with. Others, mm, that would take some time, if ever, to come around to partner with Timothy. That edgy difference would take, it could possibly create that party spirit in the congregations. 
when, if ever, it came time for rebuke and judgment of leaders who were walking apart from Holy Spirit and the Word, Paul wanted Timothy to be absolutely rock-solid founded on the Scriptures than what Paul was teaching. There, would, there could not be any excuses. You know, like, well, his wife just left him. His business partner absconded with all the money. His health is in decline. You know, he's showing dementia symptoms. You know, he has a particularly rebellious family. He just understood. He just misunderstood. Okay, truth must be openly spoken and displayed. And Holy Spirit allowed his work of conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, I know of at least one situation in the last 30 years in the communities where I live where a young man in seminary was strongly urged by a, by a uh, professor to never, ever make a friend within any of his congregations that he served. And he was just told, if you need a friend, you got to have somebody to talk to, you call them in Florida. That warning bent that young pastor into aloof, hyper-cautious hyper leadership. That, that uh, attempt, at its best, uh, at its most benign, was to limit any bias or any party spirit or any possibility of betrayal. This is a harsh way to go uh, that I believe exceeded Paul's warnings. Now, the statement about not laying hands on any too quickly is rooted in the practice of the early church that when people stumbled in their faith, made wrong choices, but then repented and came to kneel before the elders, if indeed it had been proven that they had repented and it was real and the life of the faith in them had been restored, then the elders would lay hands on them as part of their healing and refilling by Holy Spirit. Here, Paul, having already warned about the possibility of bias, states that Timothy is to be slow, thorough, sensitive, and gentle as he considers the laying on of hands on those leaders. Obviously, they've repented, and they've attempted to come back to the church, and, and Paul just says, just take it slow. I mean, I watched another local pastor here who, who I, I meet with every week, and a man came back to him after, a, a, you know, he blew up, you know, I blew up marriages and uh, had a drug experience and came to the Lord in, in a hospital. The Lord appeared to him in the hospital and radically turned him back. But, you know, my friend Felix was very slow about laying hands back on him because of the damage that had been done. And so there's been a long, careful testing period. He's been, he's been loved. He's been accepted around the edges. He's been given a little, a little side ministry. But the whole business of laying hands on is, is something that you do thoughtfully, carefully, slowly. Okay, Paul says if Timothy hurries in the process, he could share in the sins and the consequences of those sins if he lays hands on someone too quickly. The exclamation point is at the end of verse 22. Keep yourself free from sin. Another way to stay, stay pure, my son. Now here in verse 23 is a parenthesis of note. Quote, never, no, excuse me, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The translation committee inserted the word exclusively. Okay? 
So literally the Greek reads, no longer drink water, but use a little wine. So wine was never drunk uh, without being mixed, usually two to one. If it's a small child, it's four to one. You know, it's, it's you know, and, and part of the reason for that was in the Roman world, water was notably unclean. Water sources, you know, from upstream, you have animals in the water. You know, tanneries dump their, their outfall into the, into the rivers. The clean-out system uh, for other industries and general sewage removal from cities. Now, you could get yourself a case of dysentery, typhoid, cholera, uh, waterborne intestinal parasites. And so people mixed that wine because wine was a mild disinfectant for the water. Here, Timothy has been uh, invalided by some stomach and bowel thing over and over and over again. And so Paul has to step in and say, you know, what are you doing? You're drinking polluted stuff. You know, stop that. And it's possible that Timothy also got persuaded that by some of the teaching of the, of the false teachers who said, you know, you don't want to drink any wine because that, you know, that takes over your senses. You want to, you want to have clarity. You want to have great spiritual power. Stay away from the wine. Well, uh, he may have been drawn aside into that. And Paul says, look, use it as a tonic. This is medicine. This is not alcohol, per se. Paul continues in chapter 5 with a word about sins and good deeds. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, but those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Now, darkness cannot hide when the light of the gospel is turned on. And the presence of the Lord you know, is spread abroad. Darkness flees or falls on its face and repents. No matter how men and women argue their case, that when they, what they did was right, the outcome reveals the truth. For the righteous, their choices and lives shine. For others, not so. For darkness, but darkness can't stay forever concealed. Now, Forge family, the last two verses jerk us upright because we know from history, you know, in our sense of shock, the moral failures inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., a host of other urban cities, the state houses, the state legislators, community leaders, and pastors. We are to pray for our leaders faithfully, but pray for them to be blessed into repentance, into revival, into awakening to the gospel as never before in history. They too fall under the desire of God the Father for redemption and salvation to touch those lost lives. And, and then, we're to choose light and not darkness. Choose to shine abroad and not duck into the shadows. Let's pray. Omniscient one, who knows all things, all thoughts, all hidden motives and actions, we bow before you as sons and daughters. Thank you for Holy Spirit to keep us focused on purity, joy, and peace. We are all want to mature so that we can fill the shoes of our mentors, our former leaders, using their ceiling as our floor. In Jesus' name, amen.